0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Cato's live lunchtime event, Hegemon, American Territorial Expansion and the Creation of the Liberal International Order. We're doing something a little different today, and we're holding a joint book event for two great recent books that I think really speak to each other and help us get a better handle on the broad historical scope of America's foreign policy choices. The United States is largely unique among the historical great powers in its approach to the world. Um, We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years, but for the most part, American policymakers have chosen to avoid traditional colonial or imperial choices and instead have built a globe spanning system of alliances that many described as a a liberal international order. One focused on alliances and institutions rather than on imperial control or territorial conquest. But that order itself hasn't been without its dark side, underlying the liberal order with an illiberal set of policy choices, conflict, regime change, bargains with dictators. All of this raises a number of big questions. Why did America choose to create this system rather than a more traditional empire? How did America's domestic politics shape its foreign policy choices, notably attempts to protect the republic, democracy, and civil liberties? And while we often draw a dividing line in 1945 uh, and make a very simplistic argument that the period of American history was isolationist before World War II and internationalist afterwards, that's really not an accurate picture. Um, As the historian John Lewis Gaddis has argued, the history of American 19th century expansion should really be viewed as an integral part of America's grand strategy and its historical approach to the world. So, in that spirit, we've got two great books to discuss today. Let me start by briefly introducing the books and their authors, then I'll let you tell them a little about their books, and then we'll start our discussion. If at any point you'd like to ask a question, um, you can submit it via the event webpage um, or via our Facebook page for this event. Just type in a comment um, and our staff will see that that gets over to me as the moderator. So first up is The Picky Eagle, How Democracy and Xenophobia Limited America's Territorial Expansion. And I've got a copy right here. It's by Richard Moss um, and explores why the United States stopped annexing territory by focusing on the domestic consequences of that annexation, particularly the role that xenophobia played. Richard's an associate professor of political science at the University of Evansville. And then second, we have the false promise of liberal order. Nostalgia, Delusion, and the Rise of Trump by Patrick Porter. Patrick's book questions whether, despite the nostalgia that we see today, there was ever really such a thing as a liberal international order and what drove policymakers to pursue that approach instead of a more traditional imperial model. Patrick is the chair in international security and strategy at the University of Birmingham. So gentlemen, thanks so much for being here today. Um, Richard, I'm gonna start by turning it over to you to talk a little about your book.
1: Well, thank you, Emma, and thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting us today. Um, The picky eagle really began with a pretty simple curiosity, um, and that is, uh, why does the United States in the 20th and 21st centuries look very different from most great powers and hegemons of the past? And in particular, um, the fact that the U.S. based its liberal international order on a prohibition of international conquest. Um, This goes against centuries of international law, that recognized conquest as a valid spoil of war? Um, and to answer that question, then I looked a little back further in history um, and looked at the map that probably most of us are familiar with of 13 colonies expanding across the continent to the Pacific. Um, but what stood out to me about that map was why not Canada, Mexico, Cuba, or other territories? Right? Why did the U.S. stop where it did? And Uh, In contrast to the sort of conventional accounts, which would look at uh, the profitability of conquest, this is a major literature in international relations uh, pointing to great powers basically expanding where conquest pays and not expanding where it doesn't pay. Um, I looked at the uh, domestic and uh, political and normative uh, sides of annexation, consequences of annexation. Um, And the central argument basically boils down to the idea uh, in a nutshell that U.S. leaders Looked out at the opportunities that they had um, and they didn't just think of them in material terms that they thought about the domestic political and normative consequences of annexing those territories. And sometimes they decided that those territories were simply not desirable. Um, And so rather than a story of the U.S. being constrained from the outside by powerful foes um, or a major turning point, a shift in U.S. history, Uh, that made conquest no longer desirable for the U.S., such as the Industrial Revolution um, or the achievement of regional hegemony in North America. Um, Instead, I see a consistent process where U.S. leaders dating back to the Constitution um, confronted territorial opportunities and basically pursued the ones they wanted and didn't pursue the ones they didn't want. Um, And the biggest reason they didn't want to pursue some of those opportunities had to do with this interplay between democracy and xenophobia uh, that Emma mentioned. Um, Essentially, there are two main dynamics here. If you are a US leader, um, you don't want to annex a territory that's going to reduce your own domestic political influence. So if you think that uh, annexing a certain territory uh, will make the people in that territory less likely to vote for you, um, you wouldn't want to annex that territory. On the flip side, uh, you also wouldn't want to annex a territory that would make your country worse in your own eyes. Leaders have normative visions for their state, they want to make it closer to some sort of ideal that they hold. Um, And if annexing that territory would move it further away from that ideal, then uh, they wouldn't wanna do that. Um, And so I see this process playing out and especially these two dynamics uh, interweaving with each other. Um, When U.S. leaders confronted densely populated territories and they saw the populations of those territories as fundamentally alien and unfit for U.S. citizenship uh, through xenophobic lenses, Right, informed by racism and religious intolerance, uh, cultural differences, et cetera, um, that they just decided those populations were better left independent. Um, and so it's largely for selfish reasons and reasons of bias that US leaders didn't want to annex neighboring populations. And if you play this uh, across history, uh, you can see a pattern emerging very quickly. Uh, the book includes 23 case studies of US foreign policy policymaking um, Tracing the entire history of US uh, expansion from the early uh, acquisitions from European empires in Transappalachia, Florida, Louisiana, um, up across the continent to California, Texas, um, and uh, to island territories abroad. Um, there includes the confrontations with Native American tribes and the annexations of tribal lands, um, as well as opportunities to annex parts of Canada and Mexico, um, which US leaders basically established a pretty clear dividing line even very early on. Um, So as early as the War of 1812, U.S. leaders declared war on the United Kingdom in the context of the Napoleonic Wars and British maritime restrictions on U.S. trade. They then launched military activities uh, against Canada being the closest place that they could touch uh, the British Empire. Um, And that confronted them with this choice, do we actually want to go forward and and annex Canada if possible? But most U.S. leaders didn't actually want to, including the Madison administration and most of Congress. Um, And it had a lot to do with the population of Quebec. Um, Fast forward to the Mexican-American War um, and uh, the conquest of California, uh, and U.S. leaders again are faced with this decision, do we want to press forward into southern Mexico uh, or not? U.S. forces captured Mexico City, which is usually a turning point where empire would say, we've won, we claim all the territory of Mexico as ours. Um, And yet U.S. leaders didn't do that. Uh, President Polk was looking to capture Mexico City as a way to end the war as quickly as possible once he got California, which was his primary goal. Um, And so just like in Canada, where U.S. leaders very quickly rule out Quebec, but continue pursuing Western areas of Canada, Uh, across decades to come, up until the the post-Civil War period even. Um, In Mexico, US leaders very quickly rule out southern Mexico, the populist part of Mexico, um, and instead keep California, keep Texas, and pursue some other sparsely populated border territories up to the Civil War, um, but then become very content with a stable border with Mexico. Um, And when you turn to the island territories moving forward in time, uh, after the Civil War and up to 1898 the pattern of xenophobia becomes that much stronger, um, where U.S. leaders confront the possibility of annexing places like Cuba, the Dominican Republic, um, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines. um, And time and time again, the major debates in Congress have to do with the identities of the populations of those islands um, and the size of those populations, uh, crucially. So the one place that the United States does annex Hawaii, U.S. leaders openly debated in the floors of Congress the unfitness of many people living there for U.S. citizenship, but they decided that the population was small enough and the government was in the hands of American businessmen at the time that it could be essentially Americanized. This is a very common term. Uh, U.S. leaders weighed the Americanization possibilities of uh, different territories as they were considering annexing them or not. Um, in contrast, in Cuba, even someone like uh, Vermont Senator Redfield Porter, who uh, traveled to Cuba, came back and gave one of the most influential speeches, bringing the United States into war against Spain for the purpose of relieving humanitarian suffering and genocide in Cuba uh, under Spanish rule. Um, in that same speech, he uh, said he doesn't favor annexation because there's not enough of an American guiding element there um, that it would be annexing too many people of foreign uh, tongue and training, were his words. Um, and so we can see these are these are not radical views. These were the conventional consensus views across majorities in Congress and and beyond at the time. Um, And this bias towards people seen as alien, this perception of them as unfit for US citizenship, um, fundamentally shaped US views of the desirability of other territories. So across time then, US leaders time after time confront an opportunity to annex a territory, decide yes or no, it is desirable or it's not, largely based on how sparse or densely populated it was and the character of that population. Um, And by the end of the uh, 19th century, U.S. leaders essentially look out at the world and say, we don't have any desirable targets left. They had decades prior ended their interest in Canada, in uh, Mexico, in 1898. They were faced with uh, the ultimate decision on Cuba, uh, as well as Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines and uh, pursued an imperial regime in those territories rather than annexing them and putting on a path to statehood uh, precisely for this reason. Um, And then the imperial experience in the Philippines especially uh, shapes U.S. views moving forward about uh, the prospects for long-term imperialism abroad. Um, And all of that, moving into the 20th century, contributes profoundly to a foundation for people like President Woodrow Wilson, um, who steps forward onto the international stage and says... The U.S. is no longer interested in conquest, um, and in fact, nobody should be. Conquest should be an illegitimate practice. We should outlaw it under international law. Um, and in fact, we should base the entire international system around the uh, the prohibition of conquest and equal sovereignty and self-determination for peoples around the world. Um, so getting back to the foundations of this liberal international order, um, what this history shows uh, in one you know, very prominent way is that um, the, one of the central foundations of that order, uh, the prohibition of conquest, is not based on liberal ideals. It's not based on US leaders fundamentally respecting the sovereignty of other states um, or projecting their own liberal norms internationally. Um, instead, it was based on something very selfish and very biased uh, in, that was, pro, that was uh, pervasive throughout US uh, society and leadership uh, across the 1800s. Um, and moving forward, we can see shadows of it um, in uh, the enduring impact of biases in u.s society um, and uh, also in something like modern nationalism which even though kind of tempered in its uh, racism or um, religion tolerance or things like that um, still has the fundamental uh, priority of saying these people belong in this country and these people belong outside of this country um, and that those kinds of identities can very profoundly shape uh, foreign policy. So ultimately, when it comes to the book, um, it really sort of earns its name uh, in recognizing that US leaders uh, looked out at the world and and knew that as a country, you are what you eat. Um, And the US has always been a picky eater.
0: Excuse me, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, so I've been sitting talking to myself. Patrick, I was going to say your book starts about a hundred years later, but it has a fair number of similar themes. So perhaps you could just talk a little about your book um, and uh, what you'd like us to take from it.
2: Well, thank you so much, and thank you, Emma. Uh, thank you to Cato, and thank you, Richard. And it's it's a real real pleasure to be speaking with you. I'm speaking to you from Oxford in the UK, where we're busily inventing a vaccine uh so you're welcome uh so i want to talk about um one thing that connects our two books and that is this title of hegemony this notion of hegemony and the quite complicated relationship between territory and rule which is what richard so so brilliantly explores in his book uh So my book is is an attack on the idea of liberal order liberal international order uh it's not primarily a complaint about american foreign policy it's more of an observation or an argument about the tragic ways of international life itself and in a nutshell i say that liberal order is a is a contradiction in terms that ordering creating hierarchies on your terms abroad is is rough work it's brutal and involves illiberal compromises because the world is an illiberal place but one thing that i in particular want to talk about is the idea that america's uh international primacy was unique because it was non-imperial this this is this one of the one of the claims that's made uh by some admirers uh of american foreign policy is that america did not have an empire it had hegemony or leadership that is non-imperial rule this is actually a, an older idea that you can, we can trace back at least to George Grote, the British liberal historian of the 19th century, who drew a sharp distinction from Thucydides between hegemony, the kind of consensual rule over a coalition or an alliance, and uh, Arche, much more kind of dominative power. But, in fact, you can looking at those texts you see that these things are much more interchangeable and much more on a continuum and as richard was talking i was thinking about an incident that happened earlier this year uh where uh the iraqi parliament passed a resolution requesting that the u.s leave its country including its garrisons its forces And the US State Department issued a response saying that uh, America is a force for good in the Middle East. And at this time, any delegation sent to Iraq would be dedicated to to discussing how to best recommit to our strategic partnership, not not to discuss troop withdrawal, but we want to be a friend and partner to a sovereign, prosperous, and stable Iraq. So this is quite stark contradiction between claiming to liberate and be a kind of benign partner Uh, of a sovereign people and yet refusing even to talk about whether you're going to keep your garrisons there Uh, and this is i think a theme that runs through much of the american foreign policy tradition the desire genuinely to liberate but also the desire to exert control Uh, and it's partly as richard says it's from this self-image of being a republic and being averse to conquest and annexation and yet still wanting to project power and yet, still wanting to, I think, behave imperially. What do I mean by behaving imperially? I mean actually exerting a final veto or control or say over another sovereign state's autonomous decision making. And one of the things that's happened in the formation of America's identity as a superpower is the idea that because it did, didn't, supposedly didn't do formal annexation. Therefore, it didn't do imperialism, but of course you can have empire without formal annexation empire can operate in a number of ways, and it doesn't necessarily have to be as Richard shows about land hunger. So why do I say that we can't easily have liberal order, I think, for three reasons. I think, first of all, that uh, we're talking about leadership, which is often a euphemism for for dominance. But the problem with that is that it requires followership. It requires acquiescence. Uh, And that in a world, even with the least. Least bad hegemon we've ever had, the United States, that still meets resistance. Uh, And when it meets resistance, that meets the smack of government or coercion or violence. And one of the problems with a lot of the kind of Trump era nostalgia for a better liberal order is that writes out a lot of the sheer violence of history, the violence in South America, the violence across the great bloodlands of the Cold War from Southeast Asia onwards into the Middle East. But also the coercion that happened in the so-called heartlands of the liberal order in Western Europe, uh, alliances with illiberal allies uh, or um, threats of abandonment uh, or the tariff threats in East Asia, uh, which evolved often as a lot of uh, martial states, uh, uh, protectionist states under martial law. Uh, So that's one problem that actually a lot of history is still power struggle and resistance and suppressing resistance. The second problem is one of rules and regularity. You often hear the phrase rules based liberal international order. But one of the difficulties here is because we're talking about power and ascendancy, that in order to retain one's preponderance, that means reserving the right to step outside rules, to route around rules, to reinvent them, even to break them. Uh, And so we have an order in which the superpower does design institutions and rules which it wants to bind other states, but it also reserves a protectionist privilege like most hegemons do. Uh, And what's more, those rules and those principles can drive in opposite directions. Uh, On Monday, it can be about sovereign autonomy, but on Tuesday, it can be about a benevolent regime change. On Wednesday, it can be about bombing countries without a UN Security Council resolution. Uh, The International Criminal Court, all the exemptions and carve-outs the US got in order not to be held accountable to it, not to be subject to it, and coercing other countries not to hold it accountable to it. And the third problem is one of security dilemma, and that is that even if you did have a hegemon that really did consistently, sincerely want to have a rules-based liberal international order in which it was always also subject, it would still involve the accumulation of what would look like overwhelming and threatening levels of power to its rivals and its adversaries. Uh, it would be indistinguishable. From acquiring a threatening preponderance of power and no responsible official looking out from beijing or moscow or tehran or pyongyang could afford to take that on trust because even if you have good liberal intentions today they might change tomorrow or 10 years down the track so we're left with uh a paradox because america's foreign policy since 1945 has been i think a very mixed bag some some great achievements and some avoidable errors and self-harm and disasters and one of the things I argue is that the US has actually done best when it's tried to accommodate and bargain with and accept the reality of illiberal forces of limits on power of tragic compromises whether it's the opening to China uh, which is based upon a lot of very very uh, uh, hard compromises and betrayals in fact Tibet and Taiwan etc uh the silence about the bengal genocide uh, the dayton accords um rebuilding even rebuilding germany and japan was a darker business than people like to remember that it involved collaboration with fascists of the old order but when overreaching overambitious utopian ideas about liberalizing the world have taken hold when they've run amok unchecked that's when some of the biggest disasters are threatened things like overnight capitalist shock therapy in post-Soviet Russia, things like the the war on terror and the campaigns to transform the Middle East to reorder the world, or prizing open poor countries uh, to force one-sided free trade agreements. So the very moments when Washington became most intoxicated with an ideology of a crusader state, as Walter McDougall would call it, was when disaster most beckoned. So I think uh, the more prudent thing is instead of the nostalgia for a liberal order that really wasn't. We need to think about the actual real choices that are before us, if we're to think of an alternative to the era of Trumpian demagoguery and oligarchy and militarism, and especially today, the uh, imperial presidency. But that means thinking uh, directly about, I think, a more restrained, more focused uh, foreign policy in which the US aims to try and do what it can to protect its citizens' democratic liberty, but in an illiberal world. Because striving too hard to convert that world will not succeed, but it could destroy democracy at home. Thanks.
0: On that cheery note, thank you, Patrick. Um, So two very uh, similar books in many ways, but covering very different time periods. Um, So I'm gonna take my moderator's privilege here and throw out a couple of general questions for both of you. Um, But I do want to remind our listeners that if you want to ask the speakers questions, um, please do put them in on the event webpage, Uh, please put them in on Facebook, um, and I will um, start throwing those out to our speakers in just a few minutes. Um, But first, I mean, it seems to me that from from both of your sort of overviews of your books, um, there's a strong element of myth-making in both cases. Um, You know, American um, policy makers, um, you know, trying to build the idea of what kind of state they wanted to, to sort of portray themselves as having the 19th century. American policymakers trying to portray themselves as um, building a certain kind of liberal order in the aftermath of World War II. And I guess I was wondering if uh, one or both of you could talk a little about the extent to which you think that was a purposeful uh, choice on the part of policymakers as opposed to just something that happens naturally.
1: Sure. Well, um, certainly going back through the 1800s and all the history in uh, my book, the U.S. leaders took a very purposeful approach to building the kind of country that they wanted. Um, And as uh, anyone who's familiar with the history of civil rights or women's suffrage or any number of other topics would know, um, that wasn't always a republic for everyone. Um, It was a republic for a certain subset of people living in the United States. Um, And that uh, carries through uh, the history very overtly. When you look at the debates over the potential annexations of all Mexico, uh, say, the, in Congress, even the proponents, the people who are advocating, yes, you know, we've beaten the Mexican army, we should annex all of Mexico, um, they weren't saying we should uh, welcome the Mexican population with open arms. We should um, spread democracy by adding seven million more people to our uh, body of citizenry. Um, Instead, what the the advocates were saying was that they were more optimistic about the chances of Americanizing uh, the the Mexican population. Um, The advocates of all Mexico were the ones who thought that uh, in their words, like the Native American tribes, the uh, Mexican population would essentially die out. They could be driven off or um, basically that they portrayed uh, something on the order of a genocide in Mexico as being practicable. Um, that was a minority of members of Congress, and the majority overruled them, basically saying, no, Mexico's population is too large and uh, better left without, uh, outside of the United States. Um, and the same thing in 1898, when it comes to debates over Cuba uh, or the Philippines, um, the, the majority in Congress very overtly uh, are discussing how well, obviously, nobody wants to annex those territories. Everyone agrees that um, that those populations do not belong in the United States, um, and so they very overtly and and clearly, openly, this was you know public debates in Congress. Um, they were saying we have a certain vision for the United States, and those people are not it. Um, and. Uh, you know, it, it stands out in all sorts of ways uh, in the quotes in the book. Um, but one thing that I found that I thought was notable was in the Cuba debates in 1898, um, no fewer than 30 senators uh, vocalized their opposition to annexation. Um, and uh, the ones who gave a reason why all said things along those lines. Um, there was one person who very timidly said that he might be in favor of annexation, but he was willing to go along with um, with the, the majority on that. Um, and uh, so, you know, you, you can't escape from when you get into the historical documents, you can't escape from the record of U.S. leaders directly trying to engineer their country to fit with their vision. Um, and uh, there are, are other uh, great books on this as well. Um, I'd recommend for anyone interested on the dom- domestic demographic side of things. Um, Paul Freimer has a, a great book, a historian at Princeton uh, on uh, building the American empire. I believe it was called. Um, but looking at the. Uh, domestic demographic land policies that the uh, the U.S. government put in place as it spread westward um, to engineer states that would basically fit within their vision in that same way. Um, maybe Patrick has other thoughts on this.
0: Yeah, Patrick, would you like to address that question?
2: So mythmaking, yes. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, one really one continuation from that, I think, is the myth making of the present and or the recent past, and myth making in the era of Trump and proponents of what you might call liberal internationalism or or American primacy in the world, but particularly um, ambitious versions of that, right, where it's America's mission to go out and convert the world to democratic capitalism, etc. Uh, I think are laboring under what is actually quite an unrealistically difficult standard for any superpower to set itself. America, America's rise to power was peculiar in many ways. Um, in particular, it managed to become a superpower precipitately after, after years of latent power, as its main rivals in Europe were exhausting and destroying themselves. Now, I'm not going to say that was easy or cheap. It wasn't, but it was relatively easy and relatively cheap compared to the rise of most other powers. So it came very quickly at relatively low cost. And then America exerted a kind of dominance that very few powers have ever actually held on most measures, right? If you look at the economic scale, if you look at the two thirds of the world's gold reserves, the uh, carrier aviation uh the world crying out for american patronage american loans america used to be the great creditor not the great debtor this this le- relative level of global preponderance was not only historically unusual it was also unsustainable it was going to be impermanent the world was going to move back at some point to a more multipolar existence a more normal existence where there wasn't one single boss one single leader exercising armed supremacy and economic supremacy over the globe. And yet, as we have moved gradually towards a more multipolar world where wealth and power have become more diffuse and where America can't as easily get its way and can't as easily project power, American patriots are still subjecting themselves to the same standard of relative power that was established in that unusual, atypical moment of say late 1940s or again in sort of the mid-1990s and this is one of the reasons why I think we're hearing quite a lot of the rhetoric about a liberal international order is that it is a way of coping with a, a loss of relative position in the world and the idea is that if only if only Americans held on to the vision they could recapture that level of enlightened global leadership, when, in fact, the tectonics are moving in a different way. Where I think America can remain a great power and a great example to the world, but adjusting to what is very distressing, which is a return to normality, if we can call it that.
0: You really know how to end on a high note, Patrick, I have to say. Um, So, um, I do want to ask, I guess, one more question, and I think it probably is directed mostly at Patrick here. Um, I'm struck that a lot of this conversation seems to really play into some of the debates that have been happening in the public space lately about the racist origins of international relations theory. The fact that, um, you know, when uh, international relations was originating as a field, um, you know, around about the time of Woodrow Wilson, a lot of it was actually driven by a desire to talk about, you know, civilizing non-white races, all these things that today we find just very um, unpleasant to even talk about, but they underlie some of the theories that we still use today. And so Richard's book, I think, um, you know, explicitly addresses US uh, foreign policy choices on that basis. Um, But Patrick, I'm I'm wondering how much of the choices of, of allies, in this sort of liberal international order creation were driven by a similar calculus was xenophobia um, shared democracy was that a real concern for policymakers um or put it another way is it a coincidence that the free world was mostly white during the cold war
2: that's a really important question and i mean my my one thing i'd say is that whilst i think much of the there was, in some quarters, sometimes an emphasis upon, in particular, the Anglosphere, right? Um, that's as, as much on the English, British side as well, who were talking about America kind of taking up the baton of, of, of sort of British civilization. But at the same time, what's interesting about American hegemony is the is the plurality of alliances, different geographies, uh, different groups, former enemies, converted, etc. cetera. Um, And the ironies this generates, I mean, one of the most important, I think significant traditions in post-war American strategic history is, is the long alliances, dalliances, patronage of uh, Islamist groups uh, in the Arab Islamic world. Uh, Ronald Reagan, for instance, uh, often talking in very elevated terms about America's global mission, referred to the Mujahideen of Afghanistan as freedom fighters. I don't actually, I'm not implying that this was always a sort of cynical exercise, but there was, there is some, the actual behavior was finding alliances of convenience to achieve what they saw as the greater good, Uh, but which in, in, in a way diplomatic practice was much more diverse than some of the rhetoric, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that's a, a really interesting point. Um, so we, we've got about 25 minutes left and I really want to move over to some of the audience questions because we've been getting some really interesting questions here and, and Richard, I guess I'm gonna start with with you. We, we have a lot of questions from, from various people asking about sort of very specific cases. Um, so why the US annexed Puerto Rico, but not Cuba, very similar demographically, but why um, why were uh, policy makers so- fearful of white French speaking uh, people in Quebec um, when they were happy to talk about annexing other uh, parts of Canada. Um, I, I guess that sort of the, the overall question is um, how did policymakers sort of balance that discussion about you know, integration versus um, you know, not annexing at all? Like, Was it possible to integrate these people? Um, and how did that play out in just a couple of these territories?
1: Well, thanks to the viewers for all those questions. And for people who are interested in uh, the rich history of this, uh, the case studies in the book should be of great interest. Um, on issues like uh, Puerto Rico, uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, the United States was not thinking about Puerto Rico in particular uh, before entering the war with Spain. Um, the war with Spain was launched over the issue of Cuba uh, because there was a rebellion there that uh, the Spanish regime had cracked down very harshly on the local population and it became a humanitarian disaster. It's actually a, a relatively straightforward case in my view of a humanitarian intervention. As U.S. leaders said, we can't allow this so close to our borders. We need to go and help other uh, people of Cuba. But in intervening, they confronted, the Congress confronted uh, the issue of what do we do with Cuba if we can drive Spain out? And they explicitly decided we will not annex Cuba, Cuba will be independent. Um, once they actually got into the war, then it wasn't just driving Spain out of Cuba, but also the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam. And then they were stuck with the decision, okay, what do we do with those territories? Um, and there was actually some very interesting uh, discussion about Puerto Rico. I think, in my view, Puerto Rico became uh, got much closer to becoming a, on a path to statehood back in 1898 than most people now would realize Um, But once it became linked in people's minds with the Philippines and a broader island policy, um, the Philippines ruled everything out because its population was much too large. Um, The population of Puerto Rico, some viewed as being sort of closer to Americanizable, uh, say, in their view. um, Because again, that was a a predominant characteristic. Um, In Quebec, the the distinction quite simply was that Quebec had a relatively large population and the rest of Canada did not. Um, And that's true if you look at Mexico as well. Um, The area in California, New Mexico, Texas, that the United States took from Mexico in the 1840s um, was very sparsely populated relative to the rest of Mexico um, in Canada. Initially, it was Quebec and everything else. After a couple of decades, Ontario's population boomed as well, um, and U.S. leaders' ambitions moved westward along with essentially the border between the populous areas of Canada and the sparsely populated areas of Canada. Um, And so up until the Civil War and the post-Civil War period, U.S. leaders like Secretary of State William Henry Seward were still pursuing British Columbia um, and even uh, the Manitoba uh, area and more central Canada, where it was still sparsely populated at at that time. Um, But the East had basically been written off as a target for U.S. territorial expansion. Um, And uh, this leads into actually one of those myths, uh, tying back to the previous question, um, one of the myths that Uh, As Americans, we like to tell ourselves about our expansionist history because, of course, no one denies that the U.S. did expand for a century uh, early on in its history uh, across the continent. But one of the myths that that we often hear is that the U.S. expanded peacefully, that it purchased territories instead of conquering them, um, this sort of thing. Um, And that myth really uh, belies what happened in a lot of these cases. Um, Even though money may have exchanged hands in a final treaty, um, the U.S. was uh, not shy about using military force, using coercion, um, and more underhanded means to, uh, to drive people out of places that it wanted where the populations were sparse enough um, and to undermine the rule of leaders uh, in those areas to free them up for American annexation. Um, and so the big difference then between those areas and the places that US leaders uh, considered undesirable was both the size and the character of their populations.
0: Great, thanks. And, and you know, actually it's funny, you just answered, we had a great question come in from Seamus Martin on Facebook asking almost exactly the question you just answered about, you know, why didn't uh, the US try to annex the rest of Canada? And it sounds like the answer is, well, they, they did, just uh, just took a little longer and it didn't really happen. Okay, um, so Patrick, um, I wanna throw a different, a slightly different question to you. So we've got a great question here from John Dubrow. Um, and he says, "Well, isn't it possible that the U.S. simply chose hegemony over empire because hegemony is just a cheaper way of obtaining the same benefits? Um, particularly considering that the American rise to power occurred right after World War One, drove home all the hard lessons about the costs of empire."
2: It's a great question. I mean, I, I would say firstly that I see I see hegemony as as um, as not as something separate from empire that uh, there are different modes of empire uh some of which are more direct and annexationist than others but uh overthrowing regimes at will um forcing unequal agreements on subordinate powers um, vetoing decisions even things like flying to baghdad to tell the prime minister that they have to resign because they've lost your favor these are forms of imperial control as well Uh, sometimes very benevolently intentioned, but um, they are—they do express a kind of empire of, of an informal of an informal sort. Now you're absolutely right that there is a cost. There is a cost equation, and one thing that Richard discusses very well in his book is that in the 20th century, certainly after World War II or during and after World War II, arguably the costs of directly trying to overrun a country go up. Uh, nationalist consciousness is a really important part of the international story right that that those on the receiving end of bids for empire uh, are more likely to think of themselves as a nation uh and to have that sense of uh the imagined community as, as benedict anderson called it i think as well what also should be factored in is that is the situation after world war ii which is that a large part of eastern europe in fact did come under an empire of the soviet union a very brutal one uh, but again that was not formally an empire or formal annexation as i understand it it was a union of, of soviet republics but firmly under the control of moscow uh, and thirdly there was the nuclear revolution in which uh the calculus about going and seizing and stealing a state probably gets much harder, especially in very contested areas, because states are mindful of the potential costs of nuclear annihilation. So yeah, lots of things to think about.
1: Emma, you're still muted.
0: Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to throw another couple of questions at both of you guys. Um, so um, for for Richard, uh, we have a question that says, you know, the, your logic for choosing not to annex territories would maybe just make sense for any country. Um, why didn't the UK go for? Um, Uh, the same strategy as the U.S. rather than extensive colonies. And then we have somebody else asking Patrick a very similar question. Um, Suppose we went back to the early 20th century. Would you be saying similar things about the United Kingdom? So um, I guess I just want to get both of your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, Well, certainly the the logic at the core of uh, my book can operate in other countries. It's not unique to the United States. Um, The really unique thing is the combination, the important thing is the combination of democracy and xenophobia, Um, because if you have just a democracy without the xenophobia, and this actually ties into a lot of the liberal international order conversation, um, what supposedly makes the liberal order unique is those liberal ideas that uh, undergird it. But uh, if you externalize liberalism, um, if you try to spread democracy, you could do that by sponsoring or supporting democracies abroad, or you could do that by expanding your own democracy and welcoming more people into it. Um, and that might even be, in many cases, a more efficient way of doing that, especially if you're a powerful state. But U.S. leaders had zero interest in that, right? The, the way that the United States was going to, uh, to spread democracy to peoples that U.S. leaders saw as alien, uh, again, because of their xenophobia, uh, was by sponsoring democracies abroad. I and mean, so that's how you get 20th century and 21st century uh, efforts at regime change and democratization abroad instead of... Further efforts to annex territory that would bring population into uh, American democracy. Um, and on the flip side, if you have xenophobia without democracy, um, you can get uh, a lot more oppressive policies. And autocracy might be uh, more easily able to absorb populations seen as alien um, because they have very few qualms and, and more institutional capability of simply oppressing that population, um, if not exterminating that population. Um, And uh, so when applied to to other countries, obviously circumstances vary, um, but certainly the logic can travel.
0: Great, Patrick, would you like to weigh in here?
2: Yeah, I think uh, I was asked about the British Empire, I think. Uh, Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's significant that it calls itself and, You know, Benjamin Disraeli crowns Queen Victoria, uh, Empress of India. Um, What's interesting is the way in which Britain has a number of different categories of dominion. Well, you have dominions, you have territories, you have dependencies, possessions, etc. In fact, there's an ongoing question, I think, rather an embarrassing one for the liberal order sort of rhetoric about Diego Garcia uh, and an American base there and dispossession of of the original inhabitants, etc um but the american american primacy is created partly by ruthlessly dismantling the british empire the part of what happens in world war ii through, through and after world war ii is that the u.s with its distaste for overt colonialism in its own mind and its desire to take over those markets and become the uh, international protector of order um actually destroys the sterling block takes over british markets forces dollar convertibility uh makes britain a kind of financial dependent not not because it's trying to destroy britain although the effects are more damaging than it intends but that it, it is it very consciously putting an end to all that in the way it sees it uh then of course it ends up in a much more complicated relationship with european colonialism with france and vietnam etc uh but much of much of the resentment from parts of uh Pro pro imperial British opinion is that World War Two spells the end of all that, not just because of the exhaustion of fighting World War Two, but because the new American hegemony uh, uh, dismantles it. Uh, so I think there are it's not just that the British Empire and there's the American one is that the, the 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 fate of both are intertwined.
0: Yeah, um, and I, you know, I wonder honestly, if um, a more interesting comparison, everyone's been mentioning the UK, but perhaps France would be a more interesting comparison because unlike the UK, which kept its imperial possessions sort of at arms lens, um, France basically tried to incorporate them into to France itself, made them the departments of the, of the homeland rather than keeping them as territories. Patrick?
2: Yes, and uh, it just reminds me, I remember during the very heated stage of the war in Iraq, one pro-war advocate was drawing a sharp contrast between America's power abroad and France's, saying, we do not say Iraq American, right, that, you know, contrasting it with France's relationship with Algeria and its view of Algeria. But that, of course, then denies the possibility that there are other kinds of, of imperial power. Yeah, and actually, actually on the it's funny. You of should France. Um,
1: there, there are a lot of parallels there with the U.S. as well. Um, in trying to absorb parts of Algeria into France, uh, a key a dynamic there was the representation or lack thereof of the local Muslim population versus European settler population, which commanded something on the order of seventy percent of arable land and and resources and things like that in Algeria at the time, um, in ways that very much parallel the American experience. Um, And in in a credit to uh, Patrick's book as well, um, he pays a lot of attention to the ways that imperialism abroad can endanger liberty at home, Um, and that was something else that U.S. leaders were very concerned about back in the 1800s. One reason why every territory annexed by the U.S. was put on a path to eventual statehood, even though sometimes it took many decades to get there, um, was because U.S. leaders rejected Long term, endless imperialism, militarized rule and such. And they thought that was a a danger to the democracy they envisioned. Um, And in many ways, we see shades of that playing out in the 20th century and up to the present as well.
0: Great. Um, Well, so before we we sort of wrap up here, um, I I do wanna remind everybody your last chance to get in a question is is to submit it at the moment. Um, But I I wanna ask a slightly different question that came through again from an anonymous poster. Um, but somebody wondering whether um, the way that China is approaching its um, sort of global engagement today, um, Belt and Road Initiative using state capitalism to try and sort of push influence through Central Asia, um, whether that has any similarities to the the U.S. story that, that both of you are telling, whether in some ways China is um, impersonating the U.S. or if they're trying to build a different model. um, um, I I think either of you could probably uh, take a go at answering this if you like.
1: Well certainly one uh, takeaway from the U.S. story is that there are a lot of different ways to go about pursuing hegemony. Uh, That hegemony can take different forms, it can look very different based on the domestic politics and ideologies of the hegemon. Um, and this is uh, something else uh, to the credit of, of Patrick's book, uh, certainly um, in addressing the differences between American hegemony and those that came before it, um, even while recognizing the common strands in hegemony across those uh, times and, and in being a hegemon in, in ordering the international system. Um, that uh, the the kinds of dynamics and biases that Fueled the end of American annexation um, are things that haven't gone away, and we wouldn't expect to go away anytime soon. Um, And that put American hegemony on a on a founding in a certain level that that was qualitatively different in one very important way from most previous hegemons. uh, In that, the United States was not looking to conquer and absorb other other countries. Um, That's not to say that no other hegemon could not do the same thing. That Not to say that any other hegemon would be out for complete world direct domination, um, but there are different ways to go about uh, hegemony, and that's a a powerful force for restraint in uh, the exercise of American power, even while it doesn't solve all other problems.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, thinking about the comparisons of Chinese and American power in the world, uh, I mean, once you step outside China's territory, where we inside, there is kind of there is a extremely brutal, even genocidal behaviour going on. It's it, 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 I'm struck that on the one hand, those who fall under China's uh, power are less likely to have Beijing criticise their internal. Government, system of government, constitution, way of life, etc. But they are more likely to be subject to pretty ruthless demand for deference. So allies probably have more scope to criticise America uh, if they're allies. Well, they do have more scope to criticise America, but America also takes much greater interest in their internal affairs in terms of their system of government, etc. So you you have a Chinese hegemony that is that is both less curious but more aggressive at the same time in terms of belt and road i mean i think that is actually a form of i mean there, there's a huge debate about this to what extent is belton road mostly an infrastructure economic development project or to what extent is it an instrument of rule i see it very much as a, a from what i can see a very hierarchical attempt to create dependency uh and subordination and Uh, This is one of the challenges the US faces as it steps up to compete uh, with China's bid bid for primacy in Asia.
0: And frankly, the chance, uh, the fact that we're actually asking that question of what will, what will or would Chinese hegemony look like suggests a part of the problem. Um, so we have just a few minutes left and I, I guess I wanna conclude with one question. Um, we, we have a comment from, from Jeremy on, on YouTube um, that basically um, says for, for both of your um, presentations, your characterization of America as having imperial control is absurd and demoralizes our moral authority. Um, and so I, I want to come back to this, this question of myths uh, before we wrap up. Um, and, and it sounds like he's basically saying that even questioning the myth of the liberal international order is, is a problem for U.S. authority. Um, and so I, I guess what I really just want to ask you is, were these myths useful for U.S. foreign policy? Were they um, necessary or are they actually a part of the problem?
2: I think they're part of the problem, and I think that what has actually eroded America's sense of self-confidence, its cohesion, uh, is, is is not people pointing out the realities of international power politics uh, or, or the tragic ways of the international system. It's it's decades of, of failed defunct policies that resulted in the era of the Panama Papers and the Afghanistan Papers, and the majority of veterans now saying the wars since the war on terror have not been worth it and uh, Americans suffering increasingly in an oligarchic international order of money hoarding and over-financialization and the offshoring of jobs. So I'm afraid there's no apology, and uh, we need some more sober confrontation of hard truths.
1: Yeah, I would say that ultimately it's a question of how much do you value the myths uh, versus the real history, because... You know, the the quotes in my book aren't things that, uh, you know, were said recently. They're quotes that are there in the records of Congress or in speeches of presidents um, that they said openly. So if we value myths to such an extent that we want to base our policy now and in the future on an understanding of history that we know is inaccurate, I think there's good reason to think that that would be a, a foundation for bad policy. Um, Whereas if we want to do our best for the world moving forward uh, and for the United States moving forward in the world, that we should understand how we got to where we are. And for example, not think that the U.S. refusal to conquer other countries and its efforts to ban conquest internationally in the 20th century were the result of a pure externalization of liberal ideals that set the U.S. apart from other countries in history, Um, that something so foundational to the international system that we're in now um, should be understood for its genuine uh, sources and that that uh, would help to guide uh, policymakers moving forward.
0: Well, I I think that's a great note to to leave it on. Patrick, you want to add something?
2: Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, building on that as well, there are other potential sources uh, of Uh, American energy, optimism, idealism to be found other than in the quest for international primacy and armed supremacy. I mean, one of the other great American traditions which has suffered a little lately is the idea that America builds a great republic at home, uh, that it it becomes an example to the world and it interacts, tries to interact with that world as carefully and as prudently as possible so that that system at home can flourish and spread itself out as something that others can look to, so one of the purposes I think that that unites Richard and my different books is an attempt to actually help help create space for a different kind of imagination.
0: Well, well, great. Um, so that is all we have time for today. Um, but I do highly encourage you all to um, take a look at these two books. They are Patrick's book is the False Promise of Liberal Order. Um, And Richard's book is The Picky Eagle. Um, And you can find them both uh, wherever you buy books these days. Um, And I want to thank both our panelists for joining us for what was a really interesting discussion. Um, You can see the uh, feed of this event on the Cato website in the future. um, And you can feel free to reach out to us or to our panelists if you've got further questions. Uh, Everybody, I hope you have a good day.